0: Hi, I'm Grant Armstrong and I get to serve as directing pastor here at St. John's United Methodist Church in Edwardsville, Illinois. We exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Our desire is to be a beacon of faith and service, focusing our passions and gifts to reflect Christ's love to the world. You're invited to join us each week at 9am for a time of traditional worship or at 11am for contemporary worship. Thanks for joining us for this online version of the sermon.
1: Our scripture reading today comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 21, verses 28 through 32. Jesus is teaching, but what do you think about this? A man with two sons told the older boy, son, go out and work in the vineyard today. The son answered, no, I won't go. But later he changed his mind and went anyway. Then the father told the other son, you go. And he said, yes, sir, I will go. But he didn't go. Which of the two obeyed his father? They replied, the first. Then Jesus explained his meeting. I tell you the truth. Corrupt tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you do. For John the Baptist came and showed you the right way to live, but you didn't believe him, while tax collectors and prostitutes did. And even when you saw this happening, you refused to believe him and repent your sins. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God.
0: Big fan of Jeopardy! Anybody else, Jeopardy watcher? Yes. Love Jeopardy. One of the things that I appreciate best about the game show Jeopardy is your answers have to be given in the form of a exactly. So we're going to spend a little bit of time before each different message of this series uh, just playing a smidge of Jeopardy, just a little bit of Jeopardy. Now, uh, if you really want to get ahead on this, the first service is livecast. And so if you want to get the answer right every week, you simply have to watch at the ser- beginning of the sermon time for the live cast. But if you really want to challenge yourself, then you can come in fresh and, uh, and try and, and play just, you know, without having done that. There are times when people have watched reruns and tried to fool the person that they're in the room with that they know all the answers. We're, you know, that's up between you and Jesus. So we're going to start off with our category, which is questions. And our first answer is the number of Jeopardy! episodes hosted by the late Alex Trebek. Just go ahead and shout out guesses. How much? 2,000? 3,000. Okay. Any other guesses? 4,587. 4,587. We're getting warmer. Any others? Any other big guesses? We had somebody get awfully close in the first service. They guessed 8,000. The answer is, what is 8,127? 8,127. Alex Trebek hosted 8,127 Episodes of Jeopardy. That is a lot of answers in the form of a question. We're going to be spending some time with questions. Maybe not quite that many, but depending on who you're reading, Jesus himself asked somewhere between 135 and 307 questions in Scripture. Now, the reason that there's such a discrepancy between 135 and 307 is when we received the Koine New Testament, it didn't have punctuation. And so there are some things that could be translated as statements that we have formed into questions and things that were intended to be questions that we formed into statements, so there's not great clarity, but there are some things that we know Jesus intended as asking. Now, he only answers, out of all those questions, Jesus only answers three questions over the course of his earthly ministry, and so questions were a very important part of what he did, perhaps maybe sometimes more so than just providing the answers. Now it's figured that the pathway to this kind of philosophical engagement had been paved by the way of Hellenism, when Greece ruled the world and brought the dialogue patterns of folks like Socrates and Plato with them. Socrates was considered wise because he would ask questions that challenged the thoughts of those who were in dialogue with him. It was a very different approach than just saying, you're wrong and here's why. He would ask these questions. And so he would let his partners in dialogue find the breaking point of their arguments by following them to their logical conclusions. If you believe this, then it will take you to this point. Is that a true picture of the world as it is or as you would want it to become? Around 332 BC, the Greeks, led by Alexander the Great, conquered what is now Israel, and the influence of Greek culture entered in, and it stuck around. As a matter of fact, at the time of Jesus' childhood in Nazareth, a neighboring community known as Sepphoris was seen as a place deeply influenced by Greek culture even still during the Roman occupation. Sepphoris was undergoing a restoration during Jesus' childhood, and nearby craftsmen like Jesus' earthly father Joseph would probably have been called into service in that community working on the restoration and soaking in the culture in the process. Of course, we can't know that for certain because Scripture is largely silent about that stage and phase of Jesus' life. But we do know that Jesus learned how to ask wise questions at an early age. We've heard how Jesus visited the temple when he was 12 years old and he was left behind or he intentionally stayed behind so that he could hang around with those who were a part of the rabbinical tradition at the temple. And he would ask questions. They praised him for his ability to ask good questions. Asking questions was also built into the dialogue and discourse of Jewish rabbis. Questions are a great way to spark critical thinking. It's a great way to challenge presumptions and the thought patterns in some non-threatening ways. Questions can lead to new understanding, and Jesus does have a lot of wonderful questions for us. And just before we get to this passage, the chief priests and elders are asking Jesus, by what authority are you doing the things that you're doing? By what authority are you doing these miracles and forgiving people and casting out demons? And Jesus responded, answer my question and I'll tell you my answer. Did John baptize with authority from heaven or from humans? Jesus' cousin John, did he baptize with the authority from heaven or from humans? The Pharisees, these elders, knew that if they said it was from God, they would be in trouble because they publicly hated on John. They were publicly opposed to John's ministry. But they knew if they said his authority came from people, they would be in trouble also because the crowds that were listening believed that John was absolutely a prophet from God. And so their way of wriggling out of Jesus' question was by saying, We don't know. We don't know. And Jesus responded, Then I won't tell you. But since you like questions so much. And that takes us to our first lesson. Jesus will answer your question with a question. Jesus will absolutely answer your question with a question. Matthew 21, verse 28, the beginning of the verse, says, but what do you think about this? Jesus just leads in. What do you think about this? Jesus only did things to prove himself when he wanted to. You may notice that in Scripture. He only did stuff to prove who he was when he wanted to. Every time people tried to put him on the defensive, Jesus simply did not play their game. This was a little bit like a field of gray dandelions asking a tornado for its credentials. Jesus knew they weren't asking out of a desire to deepen their faith, and so he felt no need to entertain their setup, whatever it may have been. He would occasionally make the pompous and entitled people of the established religious class look like fools, however. The people in places of formal authority were threatened by Jesus. Right before this passage, Jesus had entered into Jerusalem with a king's welcome a king's entrance. And then he ran the money-changing thieves, those who were selling grace, at a major markup. He ran them out of the temple. Jesus threatened the comfort of those in the established religious order. He threatened their privilege. He threatened the status quo. What gave him the right to do the things that he had done, they wondered. Who does he think he is, messing with the way that I like things? And for who? The undeserving? It goes to show that no matter how much we learn about God, we should never run out of questions. There are still all sorts of things that we may not know or understand about our God. There are still countless mysteries of faith for us to discover, no matter our age or the amount of time that we've spent with Scripture. There are plenty of things that will still confound us. And so in the context of a loving relationship, we might ask God about these things that we don't know. And Scripture promises us that if any of us lack wisdom, we should ask it doesn't mean that Jesus will straight-up answer our questions. It may mean that he leads us on this pathway to discovery. When God doesn't answer your question, but starts planting challenge and curiosity in your heart instead, don't disdain that. Many of us are absolutely satisfied with simple answers, but God is only satisfied when we are transforming into the likeness of Christ, when we are being transformed from the inside out into who God has crafted us to be. We're being invited to take a journey through these questions. It's much more complicated, but much more interesting and much more what we are designed to experience in this life. Our second lesson this morning is this. Obedience is not just knowing, but doing the right things. Obedience is not just knowing, but doing the right things. Jesus continues. A man with two sons told the older boy, son, go out and work in the vineyard today. The son answered, no, I won't go. But later he changed his mind and went anyway. Then the father told the other son, you go. And he said, yes, sir, I will. But he did not go. Which of the two obeyed his father? And the crowd replied, the first. Especially as we get close to Father's Day, I tend to see mugs and t-shirts that have things that say stuff like, when a man says he's going to do something, you can trust that he's going to do it. There's no need to nag him every six months about it. (laughs) <laughs> Was that an ooh? <laughs> Jesus begins a parable about a father with two sons, and it's not the only time that he starts a parable story in this way. This time, the story is more about integrity. One says he'll do something and fails to do it, and one says he won't, but does it anyhow. And then Jesus asked which one obeyed. Now. Please keep in mind that when God, through Christ, is asking a question, it's not for lack of information. It's not because God doesn't know the answer. There's something more that God is looking for. We read here how the crowd got the right answer. They said the right thing. They knew it was the first one. Any fool could see that. But the exact point Jesus is making here is this. It doesn't matter to simply know the right answer. It doesn't matter when you say what you're going to do if you lack integrity. It doesn't matter if you say you honor and cherish your spouse if you are unfaithful. It doesn't matter if you signed a contract if the work is undone. It doesn't matter if you took vows of membership to a church if you're not living into them. Idle words don't mean much for jobs or marriages or for our relationship with Christ. In fact, Jesus says we'll someday have to give an account for every empty promise that we make, every idle word we speak. At the end of the day, it comes down to this. Am I doing what is right, regardless of what I said I would do? A third lesson, it's more about being on the right path than having a perfect pedigree. It's more about being on the right path than having a perfect pedigree. Jesus explained his meaning in the parable. I tell you the truth, corrupt tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you do. For John the Baptist came and showed you the right way to live, but you didn't believe him, while tax collectors and prostitutes did. And even when you saw this happening, you refused to believe him and repent of your sins. John the Baptist didn't do ministry like his father, Zechariah. Zechariah was a priest that served in the temple and maintained the Jewish religious practices as prescribed by the Torah and by tradition, all as part of the system of temple religious worship. And it's not that John did not know about that tradition. I'm sure he heard many times about how his birth was announced, how his birth was described when his father was serving in the holiest place in the temple. But John did not minister in that way. He went out to the wilderness by a stream of living water so that he might proclaim God's cleansing power to whoever might hear it, but maybe especially to those who were unlikely to set foot in the great temple in Jerusalem. And I'd say John drew a crowd, but realistically, God drew people to John to prepare a pathway for the new thing that was about to happen through Jesus of Nazareth. And here's what Jesus proclaimed. Tax collectors and prostitutes would be a part of God's kingdom before the judgmental and exclusive religious hypocrites. The Pharisees already did not like Jesus, and this little lesson didn't seem to help. Is he really saying that these sinful people outside of their religious community would make it into God's kingdom before them? That takes nerve. But I think sometimes Jesus liked to say things like that, especially to show that it's the condition of the heart and not outward appearances that matter most to God. And here is where his conversation goes from a challenging question to maybe even a threatening insult. It's not a route of evangelism that I would recommend for everybody. The Pharisees thought that by having their names on the right roster, reserved their spot in eternity. But they failed to show God's compassion and hospitality to those who had been thrown out by religion. And so they were showing that they really didn't trust God's ability to redeem. They didn't put him first or love those created in his image more than they loved their preferences. The Jewish sect known as the Pharisees no longer exists, it's given way to other expressions of Judaism and other reforms. But there are still Pharisees, they're still protective of their preferences, they still want people to know that they need to prove themselves worthy of their institution and they will make sure you know it's their institution, not necessarily God's church. So the Pharisees were content to stay in their place of religious privilege. And despite all that they saw God doing through John the Baptist and through Jesus of Nazareth, they chose the path of their comfort over the path of light and life. The sinners Jesus listed, the prostitutes and tax collectors, they weren't spotless. Maybe they were late to the party, but they believed that God had the power to redeem them that Jesus had the authority to bring them back into a restored relationship with God despite all they had done. They trusted that God might be able to use their testimony of a transformed life as they were starting to live for compassion and generosity in service to God's kingdom. Did they have the right family background? Probably not. Did they have the right religious upbringing? Probably not. But were they on the right path, the path that the Pharisees promised to be on, but we're not. Jesus was, in essence, asking his listeners that day, are you the sort of person who play acts into the Father's desires, or are you orienting your life about what your Heavenly Father says is true about you, your friends, and your family, and maybe even your enemies? Are you talking a good religious jargon, or are you embodying the compassion that acknowledges the power of grace that has claimed even your life for God? Jesus isn't asking us to fill out a Scantron or push a button on a screen of multiple-choice answers. He's inviting us to be the kind of people who answer this question with our lives, to be fully surrendered to the invitation of our Heavenly Father. And Jesus not only asks us to be a part of that, but through his gift, through his grace, he empowers us to be a part of that as well. That's part of what we acknowledge through this time of communion that Christ has not only called us to live a life that is set apart from God, but he continues to empower us to live a life set apart for God. And in this gift, he's extending to us once again forgiveness, hope, grace, power of the Holy Spirit, the reminder that we are children of the Most High God. And so I invite you to have handy your little uh, communion prepackaged elements here. And uh, if you're part of our at-home congregation, please feel free to have handy what you have to eat and what you have to drink as we join in this love feast. On the night when Christ gave himself up for us, he was gathered together in that upper room with his followers, and during the meal he took bread and giving thanks to his heavenly father, he broke it and shared it with his disciples, saying, take and eat all of you. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this as often as you eat of it, remembering me. Likewise, when the meal was finished, he took the cup and, giving thanks to his heavenly Father, said, take and drink, all of you. This is my blood of a new covenant which is poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sin. Do this as often as you drink of it, remembering me. And So as we remember these powerful acts of God through Jesus Christ, we get to offer ourselves with praise and thanksgiving as a holy and living sacrifice in union with the sacrifice that Christ has offered on our behalf. So, Lord, we pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and cup. Would you make them to be for us the body and blood of Christ so that we might be Christ's body in this world, redeemed by his blood? Would you make us one with you, one with each other, and one in service to the entire world until you return in final victory and you make our joy complete as we all get to gather together around your heavenly banquet? All honor and glory is yours, Lord, now and forever. Amen. During the music, I would invite you to uh, have the bread part up first and you can peel back the foil on the bread part and you can consume that as you would like. And then you can turn it over and peel back the foil on the cup part and drink that as you would like. And then you can spend the rest of the time during the song just praying and reflecting on God's goodness in your life. This is the body and blood of Christ given for you. In Jesus' name, we get to receive together. Amen.